are made okay by dehumanizing those people, whether they be the mentally ill, whether they be criminals, whether they be political adversaries, whether they be those who are unvaccinated. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Tea with Taylor. As always, thank you for watching. I appreciate each and every one of you and if you find any of my content informative, you find value from it, interesting, please consider liking, sharing it, subscribing. Again, thank you. Um, in my content, of course, I try to provide you guys with information. I will link all my the thing like all my sources below and of course I give my opinion too and what I'm trying to bring to you is not to tell you what to think, but hopefully provide you with some interesting content to think about. So in this topic, I wanted to, or in this episode, I wanted to discuss a movement that I came across from when I was doing research for my previous episode about climate change, whether it's extreme climate or extreme exaggeration, I was made aware of in a movement that some of you may not be familiar with it, some of you may, an anti-human movement. And I quickly realized of how rooted this is in many aspects of our society and how far back it's actually gone. And it's been talked about, it's been publicized, yet I had no, I had really had no idea. And then once I started researching, um, a lot of the language and movements started to kind of make sense and come together. So the anti-human movement will be the focus of this episode. And I kind of want to just start about start out by giving some examples of when this has been talked about pretty blatantly in the mainstream media. So in CNN, if we do not start having fewer children, a million species will die. Note that expert they interviewed is Paul Ulrich. And he is the author of The Population Bomb, which we are going to discuss in this episode, a professor who's predicting imminent mass starvation in the 1960s. And even though he was disastrously wrong, he was still then featured on CNN. Recent examples and writings that, um, that are warming the idea of human extinction include The New Yorker's The Case for Not Being Born, NBC News, Science Proves Kids Are Bad for Earth, Mortality suggests we stop having them. New York Times, would human extinction be a tragedy? And these are just a few examples from the mainstream media of them promoting that humans are disastrous, that they're bad for the earth, that we should have fewer children, that having no children or less children is the moral thing to do. I mean, just recently, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry were given a, an award for saying that they're only going to have two children and because of to protect the earth or something like that i mean how strange is that that they're giving an award for only having two children and so is she going to be sterilized is she going to close her tubes or if she ends up having another child is she going to abort it like how exactly does that work i don't know just a question so what's ironic though is this movement which we're going to see has many different parts to it that I think then all tied together have been the cause for many of the human atrocities that have happened historically as well as today. And we're going to go over how kind of the thought process behind these ideologies and philosophies, some examples of when they've been put into fruition, and then how the different movements work together for an, an essential underlying thesis of an anti-human movement or philosophy. So, you know, today it's always, we have to listen to the intelligentsia, you know, the experts. It's always the experts say, and we are to trust the experts. We're not supposed to think they're ourselves because they know better than we do. And for, for many of us, we should know not to just blindly trust the experts, the government, because as we're going to discuss, many of those people are the ones who facilitate and put into fruition these horrible ideas that then lead to horrible human rights violation as well as murder. And what's also ironic is many of these people, many of these experts, when they tout a 
philosophy or an idea or a prediction and they end up being really wrong. They're never really held accountable and then they're still touted as these experts. And I'm not saying you can't be wrong. Of course, people can be wrong, but if you're wrong, you should own up to you being wrong. <laughs> you shouldn't just be touting and in some cases touting the same ideas, like if you're a Marxist or a communist or a socialist, when those ideas are proven to not work and to actually be disastrous and murderous and not obtain the goal, or at least the goal that they communicate to the public, yet there's still experts and intellectuals that not only believe these philosophies, but promote them. And we're gonna start off by the reasoning behind the anti-movement agenda and some of the ideas and philosophies behind it. We're first gonna discuss, which I will link again below all the reading materials that I'm gonna be discussing, is The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, which was published in 1975. I recommend you guys all take a look at the stuff that I am publishing. It's not very thick reading, and but it is very informative and it's very dense, even though it might not be super thick. <laughs> um, in the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of, well, this is one of his predictions. In the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death. And now in 2021, we know as time has gone on and actually more people have entered the earth, prosperity among people have actually gone up and starvation has started to has continued to decline as well as poverty as population gone up as you can probably guess from the title of his writing the population bomb his purpose of this is population control and that we're having too many people on the earth and therefore we're going to have devastation starvation all of these things and yet he was wrong in the terms of or prosperity and less starvation has actually happened simultaneously with population growth. But let's continue on his reading and some of his ideas or predictions. He also said, as Americans, we must change the way of living to minimize their impact on the world's resources and environment. So as Americans, we should limit our population because otherwise we're going to destroy the earth. So that's one of the first two movements that I see have a common interest, population control and the environmental movement because the environmental movement is pro less people in order to help save the environment. And I would suggest at this point, going to check out my other video, Extreme Climate or Extreme Exaggeration, where I break down a lot of the statistics of the climate and whether it is as bad as it seems. And if humans, of course, they play a role in destruction of the planet but is it as extreme as they want us to believe or is it exaggerated so I would suggest taking a look at that but in ways of Americans must change the way of their living otherwise we're going to destroy the environment as well as our resources many predictions were made in um, the earlier you know in the 20th century that we are going to run out of zinc we are going to run out of iron we are going to run out of gold we are going to run out run out of all these natural resources when today we actually have more of those resources than we did in the past because of technology while at the same time we're using more of those resources so again another prediction that was to you know it was catastrophic it was going to alter the way uh, human sustainability here on planet earth yet it was wrong and no one's held accountable for that wrong prediction. He also goes on to say population control must be established and supported in undeveloped countries. And as we'll go to a little bit later in this episode, and it actually spoke in the book that I just referenced, forced sterilization has been done in the past. So he's saying that underdeveloped countries should not have more people and though measures like forced sterilization should be taken upon these communities of people which is ironic because like I just mentioned as the population has grown so has development and prosperities even in these what we would consider underdeveloped nations. Then he goes on to say that the situation requires immediate action as far as population control, immediate action at home to promote effective action worldwide. And if these voluntarily voluntary methods at home fail, it must be done by force. So if you don't volunteer, uh, voluntarily have less children, 
or decide not to have children at all or to take any of his recommendations, it should be done by force. And how exactly do you make things done by force? Any laws or anything of that sort by the state. So if it's not free will of the individual, then it has to be forced by the government. And then he goes on to say, we can no longer afford merely to treat symptoms of cancer or population growth. The cancer itself must be cut out. He's literally comparing humans to cancer. And what do we all try to do when we find cancer in ourselves or in someone we love? We want to do anything and everything to destroy the cancer. So when you dehumanize humans to relating them to a cancer, then they must be destroyed. Think about that. And this is in his writing. When you start calling people vermin or a dangerous source, then that is the starting point of dehumanizing them because once something is dehumanized, then, then atrocities can be done to them. And he goes on to say that there should be, we should exercise strict birth control. We should, and when we enforce these strict birth control, he makes a reference saying that um, other planets can't be occupied by humans, but let's say they could be, that we should only allow the sophisticated ones to go there and the rest of them, the rest of the ones that, you know, want to reproduce and stuff, the unsophisticated ones, they should stay on Earth and breed and just die. So it's always the sophisticated ones that should continue. And you're only sophisticated if you do what the experts say get it and he also mentions in the book he talks about children and how they're our financial burden and now that we don't really need child labor as much as we did in the past because of the industrial revolution we have more technology there's not really much of a need for children as there were in the past you know they're kind of expensive so instead of comparing children to a blessing and the purpose of life to have family and potentially you know child god willing it's thus they're just kind of an inconvenience and ironically, he has children of his own. He talks about it in the writing. And he also goes on to say that all of our biological urges, because it is a biological will to want to reproduce, they are often reinforced by our culture. So when we have a culture that is promoting family and promoting children and, and you know religion, like Christianity, then we are complicit with the population growth. Now, the counter to that is the culture that we're living in today when we are rejecting um, biblical, you know, we're rejecting God and we're actually wanting people to have less children. And we're also deteriorating biology. Now, men can be women, women can be men because biology is just a figment of our imagination. And when you start to structure, you know, the destruction of biology, well, then you're also simultaneously, this is when it intertwines with other things. So you corrode biology from men being women, women to be men, you also are corroding the biological will of wanting to reproduce. And that, that is a biological will. We look anywhere in, in um, the world and within species, they reproduce and they continue life on. Well, also when you corrode the bio biology, so you corrode the biological will to have children and then you also corrode the biological truth behind what a child is and when that child is conceived. Therefore, it is okay if you end that child's life while it's still in the mother's womb. So all of these things are intertwined, even if they're discussed at different, within different movements. And so he goes on to continue, and this is kind of where he wraps up saying that there's like a birth rate versus the death rate. And these are the two solutions as far as population control. The birth rate, which is when we lower the birth rate, and the death rate is which we raise the death rate. And you can this can be done between war, famine, and other, you know, murder. <laughs> and not only has this happened in the past and it does today, he's literally saying that if we can't control it from the birth rate, well, there's this other solution and it's the death rate. So when you take God out of the society, 
there is this void within human nature because we yearn for something like that and it's placed with the ability for humans to play God. So instead of people living and dying as they are too, based off their you know individual circumstances, to control the population, it would be okay for humans to di dictate and who would be those who are dictating these rules, the government, to say how many people should be allowed to live or die. So I would definitely recommend reading that. It's very interesting reading and eye-opening. And I want to continue to another article, Less Than Human, The Psychological, The Psychology of Cruelty. And this was published in 2011 in NPR. So there's this book, Less Than Human, by David Livingston Smith, who urges that it is, I quote, it is important to define and describe dehumanization because it, because it is what opens the door for cruelty and genocide. So as we were kind of mentioning in the population, Bob, because in order to take these, these um, steps to control the population, you have to deem who is fit or unfit to survive. And in order to think that it's okay to um, force some sort of atrocities against a certain subgroup of society, you must dehumanize them. And he goes over how you go about doing that. When people dehumanize others, they actually conceive of them being a subhuman creature. So it's easier to do harm to them because you're not looking at them as you or a friend or a loved one. You're looking at them because you've mentally categorize them as subhuman. And today we are wielding this tactic as far as COVID, you know, we have the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, where we are literally categorizing society based off your vaccine status. And some may think that this is for, you know, it's framed as this is for the safety of society, for the collective. So we can, we can impose and deteriorate the individual rights of individuals for the collective and the society at whole. And then there's even been articles or people mentioning that those who are unvaxxed should be de denied medical care. Once you're telling people that they should now be denied medical care, that's one more step into dehumanizing them and that they are contagious and that they are murderous because they are risking and they're killing everyone even though the vaccine vaccinated people can still obtain and spread the virus but the tactic is to divide and conquer and once you divide and you you know you categorize these people into these you marginalize them into these um poor qualities or these um i'm at a loss for words but i guess dehumanizing them. I was trying not to repeat that again, but you start the dehumanization of these individuals. And he made an example of the Nazis when they referred to Jews as dangerous, disease-carrying rats. Well, today, the, vac the unvaccinated are disease-carrying, horrible people, grandma killers. That's what the media wants to tell us. And if you don't get vaccinated, then you should just not be able to participate in society. And he also explained that the, the Nazis posed, or the Jewish people who they considered to be dangerous rats infested humans or individuals, they posed a deadly threat to the humanity at whole, like the unvaccinated. They pose a deadly threat to the, to the society writ large, even though the vaccinated can still obtain and spread the vaccine. Because that's not the point. Think about it. They also continued that the, the Nazis considered the Jewish people, they were vectors of contagion and it will remain that way as long as these peoples do not find, the people do not find the strength to rid the virus. You must get rid of these people to rid the virus. And because these people were disease carrying dangerous individuals, their actions against them were deemed acceptable by society. And we see that today, it's all right to not allow unvaccinated people to partake, participate in society. It's okay to fire them from their jobs and 
make them unable to make a living for themselves. It's okay if potentially like in Australia, they're building wellness camps in Australia. The government is literally building wellness camps because of COVID. It's okay if the government and police enforce you to stay inside your house. It's okay if they tell you that you can't see your family and friends. It's okay if they don't let you fly on planes and you must have a QR code or vaccine passport. It's for your safety. It's for the society's safety. Don't you get it? And then the article continues that kind of explaining that, you know, once a group of people have been deemed less than human and they're labeled an aggressor, they're labeled the ones that are um, comp capitulating this dangerous environment onto society, then the only way to liberate society is to exclude or remove them from the moral community. And usually, who is it that starts these ideologies or these philosophy, philosophy and tries to facilitate them and push their narrative? It's usually the intelligentsia, it's the intellectuals, it's the sophisticated ones. And then all of you, you know, you're to listen to the experts, refer to the experts, we know what's best. And it tends to be those ones that tell us that they know what's best, that aren't afraid and are sometimes willing and eager to take away your rights or dehumanize you in order to obtain their desired end goal. And many of these movements of historical past and what we see today, because are done by the intelligentsia and our intellectuals. When we think about, and one of the examples, you know, they're promoted through scientific papers, they're promoted through think tanks and universities, even medical professionals, otherwise known as experts. And an example that they, they have in the article is the 1946 Nuremberg doctor's trial, which was the first of 12 military, military tribunals held in Germany after the defeat of Germany and Japan. They participated in Hitler's euthanasia program around 200,000 mentally and physically handicapped people deemed unfit to live where um, were deemed unfit to live were gassed to death and they were performed fetish medical experiments on thousands of people. They essentially used them as lab rats and they calculated some of the um, some of the reactions they had to whatever was being done to them. And these were done by doctors. So don't blindly believe that doctors have your best interests, that lawyers or politicians or anyone always try and do research and think critically. Don't fall for the trap of experts say, therefore you must obey. And the way that they're able to do this, that you don't question morality because experts say, and you don't question maybe the morality of, a, you know, physical things being done to people as well as stripping them of their rights and their ability to live their life is when you take God out of a society, that void is there and it's filled with something. And even when it may not be filled by an individual something, it gives the opportunity for maybe the government to then look as God and when human is God and morality isn't derived from God, God itself, but humans are looked at as playing the role of God, then they get to deter determine what is moral and what is unmoral. And if history and even today tells us anything, humans themselves cannot make morality. And the reason we know good of good and evil is because of the enlightenment and the revelation of God itself and through Judaism, Christianity. And this wasn't, you know, even though it's 2021 and we don't know this, but right and wrong wasn't a universal thing in human history. So it is um, something that we had to become aware of. So just think about that. That's another movement. You have the green movement, you have the population, you know, the population control movement, and then you have the atheistic movement where they try to rid God out of society. All these things have correlation and benefit from one another. And so we'll continue with the final conclusion that they mention in this article is that the most important observation and realization when considering these human atrocities is that they were done by other ordinary humans. And that's not to say, 
you know, when you're thinking of just the leaders, that the leaders are ordinary humans, but the guards, the people that told on their neighbors, the people that turned their neighbors in, um, the con like I said, the concentration guards. And then of course you have the people within the government. You have the men, the right-hand men next to people like Stalin and um, Hitler and Mao. These were all humans. Never lose sight of that, is that these people that have done bad things are humans. And that just because it's 2021, we might, this is one of our great faults is we think that we're more sophisticated and better than others and better than and more wise than past generations. We are humans and those tendencies are within us. And we need moral guidance to avoid enacting on those tendencies. Um, so now that we kind of have an idea of the philosophies and how the psychology behind the ability to dehumanize people and then what follows that dehumanization. Let's go through some of the actions that have been taken towards people that are dehumanizing, are a violation of their civil rights and liberties, and immoral. And we're going to start with the topic of eugenics and forced sterilization. Now, um, when I was doing this research, I realized that eugenics and forced sterilization is actually a predominant worldwide phenomenon and took place in the United States. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea we had laws on the books that related to these things, and I'm going to discuss that. And it's just uh, another thing that's very telling is what parts of history are talked about and which ones are not. Um, so let's get into it. In the paper, The Science of Eugenics, America's Moral Detour by Marilyn M. Singleton, MDJD, journal of, um, published by Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, she goes on to proclaim that eugenics was thought of by many intellectuals as necessary to preserving society. Again, it's the intellectuals that are um, pushing for this narrative, you know, the experts, and they're doing it for your safety. Don't you get it? And she goes on to reference that the book, The Passing of the Race by Madison Grant, who inspired much of the legislation that was put into law in America, the eugenics and sterilization laws that we're going to discuss, as well as Hitler referred to this book himself as his Bible. And a lot of the American law and legislation as well as intellectual papers actually influenced the Nazis. And this book was listed as essential reading by the Nazis. And Madison Grant himself was an intellectual who was a lawyer and graduated from both Yale and Columbia. So since we're gonna be discussing eugenics and sterilization, let's discuss what eugenics is. Eugenics is a science that deals with the improvement as control of human mating or hereditary qualities of race or breed. Negative eugenics is aimed at discouraging reproduction among those with hereditary traits perceived as poor, the so-called unfit, or genetically disadvantaged. And she mentions that eugenics is nothing new. It was actually done in Athens and Sparta where the elders inspected the newborns and deemed which were to live and survive and the strongest were those who were to survive. Also, the fourth table of the 12th table of Roman law state that deformed children would be put to death. It wasn't really until Judaism and Christianity that the rejection of the killing of infants was acknowledged as being evil and that the acknowledgement in general and the understanding of good and evil was brought upon humans because as many of you may not conceptualize good and evil right and wrong and all of these moral standards that we hold today are not prevalent throughout human history and it really was the revelation of God and with good and evil through like religions of Judaism and Christianity. And I know many of us think that because we're in 2021 that we can judge the past in the same standards of today because we're just much wiser. And I think it would do us great benefit as a society to humble ourselves and maybe not look down upon past, you know, humans in the past, but learn from them. So let's continue. Um, 
she goes on to say that like the title the science of eugenics and it reminds me today of trust the science you don't trust the science and that's what the many movements um and today many politicians and many of the movements i guess you could say on the left frame it as the science and it's like a taboo terminology they're very good at terminology which will which will kind of point out to you throughout this episode but you must trust the science same tactics different era you know what they say history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes then she goes on to explain that Sir, Fa Sir Francis Galton a scientist from Great Britain found the modern scientist oh wait he founded the modern science of eugenics. He discovered that fingerprints were unique to each person and that there is a genetic difference between fraternal and identical twins. By 1833, he coined the term eugenics for his new science of selective breeding. Another example was Gordon Lencium, a well-known Texas biologist and physician who in 1849 proposed a bill in Wisconsin mandating sterilization of mentally handicapped and others who in other traits who deemed undesirable. Thankfully, that legislation was never brought to a vote. But so this eugenics and sterilization legislation was brought into the United States and was imposed as early as 1849. And now we're going to go over some of the historical years of when they were introduced and even became law and many um, a few times actually was brought up in the Supreme Court. And this is history that I had I never knew about. So Maybe it's new news to you and maybe it's not. But um, actually the Immigration Restriction League that was founded in 1894 by three Harvard graduates, again, intellectuals, was the first American entity associated officially with eugenics. And they were against bringing in other ethnicities to preserve what they claimed the superior rate, the rice or the superior race, um, like, Madison Grant in the passing of the great race, the Nordic race. And so it was rooted in not only eugenics, but racism. In 1896, beginning with Connecticut, many states enacted marriage laws with eugenic criteria prohibiting anyone who was epileptic, imbecile, or feeble-minded from marrying. In 1897, Michigan State's legislator became the first in the country to pass four sterilization laws, but the governor vetoed the bill. 1890, renowned surgeon Albert Ashner learned to perform vasectomies and spoke at the American Medical Association, recommended them and recommended vasectomies for criminals, those with chronic, um, those with chronic inbreeds, imbeciles, and perverts. In 1898, Harvard professor Charles Davenport Davenport launched the American eugenics movement. His single gene theory, human traits were controlled by single genes and therefore inherited a, predi um, a predictable pattern. He believed that the human population could be improved by selective breeding, just like we do with animals. And so because of his theory, he thought that humans could improve society themselves by selecting which humans could survive, which ones could marry, and which ones could procreate, ultimately humans playing God. In 1902, David Starr Jordan, author of Blood of Nation, a study of the decay of races by the survival of the unfit, he scientifically concluded that human qualities and conditions such as talent and poverty were passed through the blood. So it wasn't just like your environment and your situation, you were poor because it was in your DNA, Trust the science. And then when they're wrong, even though they never admit they're wrong, the science changed. In 1903, the American Breeders Association, now called the American Genetic Association, was established. 1905, Dr. Thomas Watt Turner, a member of the NAACP, promoted a simulation eugenics, proposed that the, tal the talented tenth of all races should mix. The best blacks were as good as the best whites. So at least they were a little bit more modern as far as that other races could be of the same standard. Now, what's important today and what's important, ironically, even though this was in 
1905, our founding, in our founding documents, all were created in God's image. And that's why that's important and what makes America unique, even though many times historically and even today we fall short of those ideals. In 1910, the American Breeders Association founded the Eugenics Record Office, ERO, whose first mission was to identify the most defective and undesirable Americans, at least 10% of the population. Funded, and this EFO was funded by the Andrew Carnegie Foundation. So it is important to know who's funding these movements and to know that a lot of times maybe some of the corporations that fund some of these movements, maybe it's a profit motive, maybe it's because they think it's the right thing to do, or maybe it's a little bit more sinister. Then let's continue. One of the first cases, or the first Supreme, the case that made it to the Supreme Court in 1927, Buck versus Bell Supreme Court case, made eugenical sterilization the law of the land. In this case, the plaintiff was Carrie Buck, a 14-year-old girl from Charlottesville. She was born out of wedlock. Her mother was a prostitute. The Virginia Colony Asylum decided that she would be institutionalized because she and her mother, her she and her mother Emma, shared the hereditary traits of feeble-mindedness and sexual um, promiscuity. So your actions are actually within your DNA, which is counter to us believing that we have free will, but she was told to be institutionalized for these things. And a sociologist and Red Cross nurse examined her baby and decided she was below average and not quite normal. The judge then concluded that Carrie should be sterilized to prevent the future birth of defective children. And this was promoted as being in society's best interest, as well as the future life of this baby that we know since it's in her blood, poor decisions is in her and her mother's blood, that this baby or future baby shouldn't even have the right to life because, you know, they're being convicted before they even commit a crime. In 1930, 33 states had compulsory sterilization laws in the United States. 1942 was another Supreme Court case, Skinner versus Oklahoma. Oklahoma was one of 13 states permitted involuntary, involuntarily sterilization of criminals. Jack Skinner, who was 13 times felon, the court struck down this law based on the 14th Amendment of Equal Protection Clause. 1974 was another Supreme Court case, Ralph versus Weinberger. Alabama took three girls ages 12, 14, and 16 to a doctor who inserted an IUD in one of them and sterilized the other two girls. The appeals court affirmed that and called for a new clear federal guidelines with respect to minors and called for a new clear guidelines with respect to um, adult, um, incompetent adults in order for them and um, help incompetent adults saying that incompetent adults and minors cannot properly consent and this is another movement that ties into this when we are saying that children and minors should have the ability to consent to surgeries to change their gender because that's within the transgender um the transgender movement and it's a very, very, very slippery slope when you're allowing minors and children to make a decision that is life altering and cannot be reversed. So I predict many court cases in the future to fall within that topic. So within the 1900s and the 1970s in the United States, 64,000 people were forcibly sterilized within 30 states. North Carolina being one of the strictest in that an IQ test of 70 or lower or lower qualified for sterilization. State social workers could file a petition for sterilization in North Carolina. These atrocities and human rights violations were made by those who respected or are influenced and created the science. And they did it under scientific fact. You were to trust the science and it was in the benefit of the society at whole. Do you see the patterns and the tactics that, tactics that have been put into fruition in the past and are being replicated today? Be mindful of that. But if you don't know history and you don't stand for anything, you can fall for anything and everything. So 
A lot of these ideologies and these narratives were formulated by the experts and the intelligent, sophisticated ones among us. And when they're supported or facilitated by these intellectuals and then they're supported and forced by the state with no concern for civil liberties and individual rights. And the article she ends with, and I quote, America's commitment to personal autonomy needs to continue to supersede any future efforts at government social control. But in today, in 2021, we're witnessing the government and private sector working hand in hand to vigorously work against the individual right for bodily and medical autonomy for us to choose what we want to do with our body. And if we want to take a vaccine, but they want to mandate it or else you were unable to participate in civil society. And if you were unvaccinated, you are dangerous. You're a disease spreader. What are they doing? What is this tactic? They are dehumanizing those who are unvaccinated and not doing what the experts say that they should do for the safety of society. But this is not unique to America. As we see today, it's happening much around the world with the vaccine situation. But as far as laws of eugenics and the ideas of eugenics and the laws and the, the um, facilitation of forced sterilization, it's actually a worldwide phenomenon. So let's go over some of the statistics. Sterilization in India, and this is BBC News 2014. The drive to sterilize um, the drive to sterilize began in the 1970s when encouraged by loans amounting to tens of millions of dollars from the World Bank, the Swedish Institution Development Authority, and the UN Population Fund. India embarked on an ambitious population control program. In 1975, when civil liberties were suspended, Sanjay Gandhi, son of the former Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, I apologize if I butcher those names, began was described by many as gruesome campaign to sterilize poor men. An astonishing 6.2 Indian men were sterilized in just one year, which was 15 times the number of people sterilized by the Nazis, according to the science journalist Mara Hivistandl. Again, I apologize for my pronunciation. Between 2013 and 2014, India carried out nearly 4 million sterilizations according to official figures. Less than 100,000 of these surgeons were done on men, or surgeries were done on men. More than 700 deaths were reported due to the botched surgeries between 2009 and 2012. Peru forced sterilization. Between 1996 and 2000, more than 270,000 women and 22,000 men were sterilized as part of a government-run birth control program according to officials figures from Peru's health ministry. 1996 to 2000, according to data released in 2002 by Peru's health ministry, 260,874 women had tubal ligation operations. Rights groups, the Latin American Committee on Rights, CLADEM, says that as few as 10% of them may have given consent. Japan forced sterilization, and this is from Nippon in um, Nippon.com, 2018. In 1914, Japan followed the example of Nazi Germany by passing its own national eugenic law. The law permitted forced sterilization in the public's interest. It's for, the, it's for your safety. It's for the public's safety. In case of people hereditary mental disabilities and other genetic conditions. Doctor could recommend sterilization to perfectual eugenic protection committees. Following a screening by the committee, sterilization could be then carried out not only by people with hereditary mental illness um, or other clearly genetic conditions, but regular mental patients as well. So it's up to the doctor and the social committee to deem if you should have the right to life or not. Again, humans playing God. By the 1950s, more than 1,000 people were subject to forced sterilization every year in Japan. In 1996, the law on eugenic policies was scraped in its entirety and replaced by the Maternal Health Act. By this time, a total of 16,250 people had been sterilized under the Eugenic Protection Act over a period of 48 years. 1970s, some doctors and people in charge didn't care. They still thought that the mental health institutions continued to believe that sterilization was an appropriate response to mental illness, both for the individual and public interests, and continued to recommend the operations of 
um, many who were sterilized without any explanation, including minors, mental patients, and, um, and children, which are minors. So, um, but as you can see in that, in that writing, it's for the individual because they know what's best for you, as well as for the public interest. It's for your safety. I'm going to keep saying that. It's for your safety. They're here to help. So Sweden forced sterilization between 1937 and 1975 regarding the sterilization laws that were in place in Sweden, an estimated 60,000 people were involuntarily sterilized. Australia forced sterilization. The legal scheme allows courts to decide whether or not to medically eliminate an individual's um, procreative ability if he or she is deemed mentally unstable to understand the consent of the procedure, provided that the courts find the procedure to be a patient's best interest. And this was called out by the UN in 2014. So Australia still have these laws on the books that they can force sterilization upon people. And in 2013, the Senate in Australia had ruled that the involuntary, involuntarily the involuntary sterilization will not be banned and will remain lawful. And that was in 2013. And so you can see, as we started off with this episode, population control. We must control the population in order to sustain human life. So we must either prevent more life to be brought onto Earth, or we should raise the death rate, because those are the two options, in order to sustain human life. So the irony in that, in order to sustain human life, we must prevent it or kill it. So it starts with population control, and that is to make life more enjoyable for those here on Earth, as well as to the green and the environmental movement to preserve life and Earth. So you have population control, you have the green movement, and then followed by or enforced by eugenics and sterilization. And all this is done by or made okay by dehumanizing those people, whether they be the mentally ill, whether they be criminals, whether they be political adversaries, whether they be those who are unvaccinated. And it goes on to continue, this is another movement, abortion. Because when you dehumanize people and you think that humans can then play God and decide who should live and who should not, and that Pop, like having less people on earth is actually a good thing and that we should have less children. And when you corrode biology because men can be women, women can be men, and also that it's not a baby, it's just a clump of cells that makes it acceptable and in cases even promoted to kill the unborn in the form of abortion. And this is touted as healthcare. Abortion is healthcare. Abortion is a human right. It is your human right to end the life of another human right. And it should be pro-choice. My body, my choice. It's under the guise of planned parenthood. Rather than planning to be a parent on when you should have sex, you should you have, you know, responsible sex and are you ready to be a parent if not maybe not having sex and I'm not saying I'm a saint obviously but I'm just saying they're very good at their terminology planned parenthood but instead it's not really planned parenthood it's killing the inconvenience and then just not becoming a parent um so let's go over some of the statistics and the ideas behind this movement in 2018 the CDC statistic in the United States 619,591 legal induced abortions were reported from 49 reporting areas, according to the CDC. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, 62,502,904 babies have been killed by abortion in the United States. That's a lot of deaths. And this movement was really started by Margaret Sanger. She was a eugenics that believed in human of selection as to what babies should have a chance to live and what babies should not. She founded the American Birth Control League in 1912 and the Birth Control Federation of America, now Planned Parenthood, was established in 1939 and it became Planned Parenthood in 1942. 
Planned Parent and Planned Parenthood is, in my opinion, again correlated with all these other movements of population control, eugenics, who has the right to live and who not, and even which races are superior. So 79% of Planned Parenthoods are walking distance of Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. In New York, more babies, Black babies, are likely to be aborted than to be born alive. So Planned Parenthood actually, when all these people are promoting that it's liberating to have an abortion and that it shouldn't be judged, it should actually in some cases be celebrated, is it, why is that? I'll let you think about that based off what I've talked about and some of the statistics that I read, but why is that? So let's go over some more statistics worldwide. In India abortion, um, India abortion, a study published in the late in the Lancet Health Global Medical Journey, Journal found that at least 15.6 million abortions are committed every year. The government had been consistently reporting about 700,000, but that doesn't count private abortions or self-administered at home. Japan, 1950, more than a million abortions were carried out every year based on official reports. Japan became one of the first countries in the world to legalize and liberate abortion and become known as the abortion paradise. It's disgusting. China's one-child policy. So as we know, China, not only are they egregious on a human rights violation, but they are specifically egregious on abortion. Many of us know that um, China, who's had the world's largest population, but India is, it might may soon lose that to India. In the early 1970s, when Mao was in charge, he died in 1976, China made a dramatic shift from voluntary family planning to mandatory birth limits under the slogan, later, longer, fewer, because they were trying to control the population because they were fearful of the population bomb. You see how this is all intertwined? In 1980, the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, launched an even more damning or damaging and coercive campaign that attempted to attempted for the next 35 years to limit Chinese families to having only one child. 330 million abortions since the policy was first enacted in 1980. 330 million. That is 13 million abortions every single year many of which are women because men are deemed more you know stronger and again humans playing god on who should live and who should not in 2015 the ccp decided to end the one child limit with chinese families since january 1st 2016 allowed to have two children but no more than um but no more at least as of 2019. the government mandated uh, devices for women giving birth to their first child and women who had multiple children were frequently subject, sub, subjected to forced sterilization. This policy was resulted in a large imbalance between men and women. So because they aborted so many women versus aborting so many men, the gender ratio of 120 boys through to 100 girls, which left about 17% of China's young men unable to find Chinese wife, which is a big issue because if men are unable to, you know, that is, we are humans, you aren't able to find a loved one or to have that sexual interaction with people, that is going to cause a lot of frustration with the men in China. And it's actually bred a or promoted a slave trade in China, which many um, happen to come from North Korea. I've read a recent book by Yamni Park where she actually escaped North Korea into China and was put into the slave trade. So that is another symptom from this um, forced sterilization or even abortion in the case of the China's one child's policy. and. Going back to, so we obviously know that was a bad policy and it's had many bad outcomes, not to mention it was very immoral and it violated the rights of individual rights of humans to have babies and to have families and it was forced by the government. And even though we know this was a bad policy and it was evil, there are still intellectuals who promoted it. There are Sarah Conley book, One Child, 
She said that the overpopulation is a major driver of climate change. Again, population control, dehumanization, green movement, all intertwined, abortion. And she said that we do not have the moral right to more than one biological child per couple. We should adopt a, um, a fertility reducing interventions, which, which if necessary includes a one child policy. So even though that one child policy was evil that was put into China, we have intellectuals who still promote it today. And she actually says it's moral because instead of finding our morality from God or the Bible teachings, humans can decide what's moral and what's good and what's evil. And this goes again, when intellectuals, when ideas have been tried and they have been facilitated, they still, many intellectuals still hold on to those ideas even though we know the outcomes are bad. Marxism, communism, one child policy, socialism, all these ideas have been facilitated. They have been tried and they're bad ideas. Yet many intellectuals and experts say that we should still believe in them and facilitate them and push for them in society. And I just want to say that the U.S. actually, so the Center of Disease Control for the U.S. fertility rate in 2017 was 1.77 babies per woman, um, below the replacement rate of 2.1 babies per woman needed to maintain the current population. So we're actually promoting and as a society we're propping up less children, even though we're at risk of our population decreasing. But many think that that's fine because then we can just import populations from all over. So it's almost makes you think, are all these things sinisterly sinister? Are they intentional? And obviously I told you, I believe they're all intertwined. And that's not to say that a lot of these people that, you know, your everyday people who are in favor of these movements are bad people. I think there's a lot of good people within all of these, they have all of these concerns. It's more of the leaders and the intellectuals and the experts and the politicians who want control over these, these narratives and these motives to then dictate how the rest of society and individuals should live and they violate the individual rights of citizens. So in my conclusion, like I said, I think that all these movements are intertwined. I think the population control and the dehumanization and then under the guise of environmental movements and to protect the environment and to protect the sovereignty of the individual and then to also then think that it is moral or okay to abort and to play God and to decide for humans to be able to decide or our sophisticated betters to decide who can live and who should not live. And with that being said, we must be aware and cognizant and never fall into the trap of what the media and all these, you know, the powers that be or the people of influence when they say you, you have to trust the science, you have to trust the experts and you must not think for yourself, don't do your own research, don't listen to opposing opinions. If there's a minority amount of doctors who are saying this, don't even listen to them because you must listen to the majority and the experts because we know best. We know what's best for you. Don't think about it. Just trust us. And that's historically and even today as we see living out in 2021 with the egregious violations of our rights, especially here in America, where our rights are given to us by God, where we are they are endowed by our creator, that um, each and every one of us are equal and we are equal within God's image. Those are important and we're seeing those be totally, totally, we're seeing those be totally devastated by our, our people of power, our politicians who categorize these civil rights violations and these, you know, these violations of our liberties as being scientific facts as being for the betterment of society, of being for your safety, of being for, it's, it's what's best for you because the experts say so. And it's the science, don't you trust the science? And even when these people are proven wrong, they're not held accountable, they're not even, they're still touted as being experts. And of course, like I said, you can be wrong, but you must admit when you're wrong. Instead, they never admit when they're wrong. The science changed. And even when, even when they've pushed for horrific ideas that we're seeing today, and even when they push for horrific ideas that have been facilitated in the past and are being 
now reintroduced in today's, you know, same tactics, different era, they're never held accountable. And, you know, just be a good citizen, listen to the experts. And I'm asking for all of you not to just be a good citizen and do what you're told and listen um, and believe what you're told, but to think, to be curious, to be intellectually curious, to do some research, to listen to different ideas, and ultimately to just think for yourself. And I'm not telling you what to think with all of this. I'm just providing you with some information that I found to be very interesting. Of course, I give you my opinion. You can believe it or not. I hope you enjoyed the perspective and found some value out of it. But just be aware that many of these people that are facilitating these movements or these narratives or funding them may, in my opinion, don't have your best interest or society's best interest at heart. Whether that be population control, the environmental movement, abortion, in my opinion, a lot of it stems from dehumanization and anti-human movement. So again, I will link my sources below. Um, if you found any value, you found interest, let me know what you think. Like, share, and stay tuned for another episode of Tea with Taylor where I dissect the topic and hopefully provide you some information and an interesting perspective. So thank you for joining me. I hope to see you soon and take care. God bless because our morality and our rights are derived from God, not man, or government. So take care. God bless and think for yourself. See ya.